All right, uh, Rabotai. Welcome. <coughs> we have another uh, special edition of our Monday night shiur here at the Lawrence Avenue Synagogue. Uh, we don't have to say the date. Once we say that the parashah is by Yishlach, it's obvious that this is a winter shiur, which is a... Uh, a credit to the members that they come out on these bitter, uh, cold nights. And nonetheless, they're still committed to study the Torah. It is, uh, it is great to see all of our <coughs> annual, all year-round members of the synagogue. Baruch Hashem in good health. We have our great rabbi with us tonight, Rabbi Malka. Uh, there's no reason for him to be here tonight. <laughs> He only comes to give me the moral support, and uh, he knows that my self-esteem is a little weak, and therefore he needs to give me the chizuk, and uh, I appreciate that. My therapist thanks him also. <laughs> We're very appreciative. We, uh, Rabbi Mark is doing such a great job uh, during the winter that I hope uh, that by the time I come back permanently for the summer, I still have my job, Ezrat Hashem. <laughs> All right, Rabotai, we're learning Parashat Vayishlach. Well, Vayishlach is unique. Not because it's a long Parashat, it has 148 Pesukim, but uh, maybe you paid attention when they took out the Sefer Torah, or if you might have gotten an aliyah, if you were so lucky to get an aliyah the Shabbat, you would have noticed that parashat Yishlah is one of two. There's only one other parashat that's like it, and that is, it is referred to as a parashat setumah. Our great Baal Koreh, Abraham Salem, that's with us tonight, can uh, confer that indeed, it's all one long paragraph, the parasha. 148 pesukim, there's no breaks. We call that a closed parasha. There's no paragraphs where you say, okay, it ends here and we start here. It's satum, it's closed. And the question is, trivia, the only other parasha that's like that is parashat balak. So it'll give us something to talk about in the summer. But tonight I want to refer to the parasha setuma of Vayishlach. Why is it so? So the Bala Turim, right away in the beginning of Padashah, tells us a reason. I'd like to read it. I said Vayishlach, no, I mean Vayitzah. I was preparing Vayishlach in the office, but you're correct, Vayitzah. Right in the beginning of the Padashah, the Bala Turim says, Yesh Omrim, She Padashah Zu Setuma. It's closed. Uh-huh. Because Yaakov Abin was running away. And when he was running away from Esav, he had to run away hiding. So therefore he was hidden. So the parashah is closed. It's satum to hint Yaakov Abinu's fleeing from Esav that was done in a way where he hides. Obviously, he doesn't want to get caught, so he hid himself in the bed with Rash for 14 years. Parashah said to Makeneged Yaakov's uh, clandestine running. However, there is a great rabbi 
called the Or Gedaliahu. That's Rav Gedal Yeshur. And he writes in his Sefer, in the Parasha, Parashat Vayetzeh, Parashat Zu, he Parashat Galut. Oh. Our Torah discusses all major topics that will be relevant for the Jewish people throughout their history. For example, for those that have children that they want to marry them off, we have a special parasha to end the Hayesara, which teaches us all the rules and regulations how to marry off a child. The Torah explains every situation that is going to be necessary. One subject which is very, very pertinent to the Jewish situation is exile. Galut. After all, we've been in Galut for the majority of our existence. This Galut that we're in now is pushing 2,000 years. That's a long time. So Jews have to know how to exist and how to live in Galut. So where's the parasha? Where, where do I look for the handbook of the Jew in Galut? Says Rav Gadal Yeshua, Parashat Galut begins in Parashat Vayetzeh. After all, Yaakov was living in Israel. He was living by his parents. And all of a sudden, anti-Semitism, his brother Esav, causes him to flee. Now Yaakov has to run outside of Israel to the diaspora. And therefore, he says the parasha is situma. Why? Because while we're in Israel, the revelation of God is explicit. It's apparent. We see the open hand of God, like the Pasuk says, that the eyes of God, the eyes of God are very, very pronounced in Eretz Israel. You see the miracles. You went to the Beit HaMikdash, you saw open miracles every day. However, when you go into Galut, God is there, but He's hiding. He's looking at the window. He's looking behind the bushes. Of course, God is with us even in Galut. Shekhinah exiles with us. However, it's not as revealed. It's not as pronounced. It's not as obvious. And therefore, the parasha of Galut is indeed parasha setuma. It's a parasha that's concealed. Hinting to us that the revelation becomes concealed during that time. So, gentlemen, tonight, if you'll allow me to make some observations from the parasha that are relevant to the Galut, especially to current events, and I think the observations that we're going to make tonight are well worth your consideration and your time. So let us begin. Yaakov has the dream of the ladder. After the dream is up, God comes and blesses Yaakov. Tell me how you learned this pasuk. God says, What does that mean? And your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. To be honest, the way I always learned it, multiple like the dust of the earth. Just like the dust of the earth, you, you practically can't count it. That's how numerous B'nai Yisrael are going to be. Now, although it's not the case, although if you, if you take any census of the Jews at any given time, we are always considered, we are considered a small minority, 
not even 1% of world population. But here the Torah says, I'll tell you the way I always understood it. That if you came from Mars, and you had no idea of world population, and you went and you looked at the United States Senate, for example, to take an experiment, and you say, well, there's only 100 of these guys. And they're representing 300 million people. And seven of them are Jewish. So then you say to yourself, if you're a Martian, well, seven, that's 7% out of 200 to 300 million. So there must be, uh, I don't know, 50, 60 million uh, Jews. If you went to the science uh, uh, labs and you saw how many Jews are represented, and you went to the hospitals and saw how many doctors, and you went to look at the Nobel Prize list, how many Jews are represented, you'd get the uh, impression that the whole world is full of Jews, and that we're the majority, although we're the minority. If you open Forbes, uh, and you look at the, uh, the list of the Lamed Vav Sadiqim that they have over there, <laughs> and you see all of the, the Ashire Am, and you see one Jew after the next. So you say to yourself, well, there must be, uh, you know, like the anti-Semites say, they're taking over the world. But it's not the case. Our accomplishments are deceptive and disproportionate to our numbers, exactly. So that's what it might mean. It's going to be as numerous as the Afaraaris, at least in perception. It's going to seem that way. But I'd like to direct your attention at this moment now to the Sephorno. Now, being that I'm the only one that has a book in front of me that has a Sephorno, so I'm going to read it out loud. Please pay attention to Botai. Because it's a novel understanding. And then what does the Pasuk say? And you're going to flourish in all directions. You're going to flourish to the west and then to the east and then to the north and then to the south. You're going to be all over. So the Sephorno writes. There's going to come a time where the Jewish people are going to descend and they're going to be as low as the dirt on the ground. According to Sephorno, it's not complimentary. It's telling you that the Jew is going to reach what we say in America, rock bottom. Bottom of the barrel. It's going to be the lowest level. He's going to be uh, trampled and, and, and persecuted. And nobody's going to come to his defense. And the Jewish person is going to be like the dirt on the ground. And we might add that there might come a generation where it's to be taken literal. During the Holocaust, they pulverized the Jewish bodies. And we actually became... Afara Aris, it happened. Well, says the Sforno. He says, there's going to come a time where Christ is not going to only be low and downtrodden, it's going to be the Tachlit HaShiflut. Tachlit means the epitome of loneliness. When you think they can't get any lower, at that point, as, as means then, that's going to activate something. 
תפרוץ בארץ אשר אתה שוכב עליה בכל צד. Only then will Klai Yisrael flourish, which means Klai Yisrael flourishing has to be preceded by Tachlit HaShiflut. We cannot go straight into Geulah. Klai Yisrael cannot go straight into redemption. The process must first include Tachlit HaShiflut. And he writes, Ki omnam tishu'at ta'el atidat tihiyeh. It's true. There's going to be a tishu'ah. Redemption is guaranteed. But ahar rov shiflut Yisrael. But Klai Yisrael is going to have to go through a process first. And it's not going to be a comfortable process. And that's the way he learns the pasuk. Vehaya zar'acha ka'afar ha'aretz. And then, ufaratzta. Gentlemen, I'd like to read you a midrash in Tehillim chapter 20. The midrash is very pertinent to what we just said. It's on the pasuk, it's midrash Tehillim. Ya'ancha Adonai b'yom sarah. That God will answer us on the day of trouble. Mashal, it's a parable. Le'av u'ben shayu malchim baderech. A father and a son are walking on the road. What happened? The boy, the son got weary. He got fatigued. So he tells his father, When are we going to get to the city? He said, my son, I'll give you a sign. When you see the cemetery, then you know we've reached the city because the cemetery used to be on the outskirts of the city. When you start to see that the troubles are enveloping you and overcoming you, when? can only happen, God can only answer you when the tzarot are going to surround Klai Yisrael from all sides. The Midrash is telling us an amazing Yesod. Klai Yisrael's redemption must be preceded by the Beta Kevarot. The Beta Kevarot must come first. And some have seen in this Midrash an illusion of something that happened in the years 1937 to the year 1948. If you remember, what was the Holocaust? The Holocaust was the Beta Kevarot. And what did the Midrash say? The child asked the son, when are we going to get to the Medina? And the Midrash says, when you see the Beta Kevarot, then you'll know we're close to the Medina. And some see that this is a, a clear prophecy. The Holocaust clearly was the, was the Beta Kevarot, the national Beta Kevarot. And as a result of that, what came right after that? Medinat Eretz Yisrael. It is a big, uh, it is a big wow. The Lashon, the Beta Kevarot in the Medina. But my question was as follows. And the truth is, maybe you're not allowed to ask this question. 
But since I'm the moderator of this class, I get to control the questions that are being asked, even if they're not maybe legitimate questions. The question that I asked was, why does it have to be that way? Why does it have to be that we have to suffer first to get a Geulah? What, God doesn't have a direct flight to Geulah? You got to go through Gehinnam first to get to the Geulah, to get to Gehinnam? Now, I, I know, I know, Rabotai, Vahiere, Vahiboke. I know the rule, that before the light of dawn shines, you must go through darkness. And I'm also aware of the fact that right before dawn, it's the darkest part of the night. So it has to get extremely dark before it gets light. But why? Why does it have to be that way? Why can't God just say, cut out the hayazar acha ka'afara ares? Cut out this shiflut, taklit uh, 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 shiflut, and bring us straight to Geulah. Is the question I'm asking accepted by the Kahal? So to my delight, I found that it's asked by the Kliyakar. So now I'd like to bring your attention to this Kliyakar. Now the Kliyakar has another question. He says, does anybody know how, how a compass, you have an image of a compass in your brain? So anybody know the directions of the compass? If you're starting north and you're going, I guess, clockwise, you're going to the right. So it's north, east, south, and west. North, east, south, west. Very good. That would be the normal way we would read a compass. Asks the Kliyakar, what happened to the compass of the Torah? It went haywire. If you look at the Pazuk, it says, Ufaratsta yama vaketma. West, east, safona vanekba. North, south. That's not giving me the direction in a normal compass. That's giving me points of extremes. Says the Kliyakar, why? Why not just give me the normal... Di- you want to scatter me around the world? No problem. Give me the normal way in the circle. Why do you come along and tell me east, west, north, south? I'll read you the question in Kliyakar. So he says, you know Why? Because it's based on what Sforno just told us. He echoes the same words, mamash, stereo, that the Geula cannot come until Tlaisla betachlita shiflut. And he quotes a Pasuk at Tehidim 44, Our face is in the ground. And what did it say after? Now you can now you can bring us aid and help. Here we go. And now we get to the reason. Until we reach rock bottom, the lowest level. As enan tolin betonam bahashem. 
They don't put their trust in God. Vehoshvim tahbulot. They're constantly thinking of all different devices and mechanisms and different type of maneuvers to save themselves from the trap of exile. Synthetic plans, natural plans, human intervention. Says the Kliyakat, no problem. As long as you think that you can engineer peace with the goyim, and you think you can handle, don't worry, I know the senator, he's my friend. Uh, we have a friend in the, you know, in the high, high places in the government, he'll handle it for us. No, I had the mayor at my house, we had a function, we gave him a lot of money. Now we're good, you call this guy, he'll take care. So says Kliyakar, uh, Geula only comes when you're at the point where you come to the realization that nobody can get out, get us out of this mess. But as long as you still think that you could manipulate through your different, uh, 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 you know, maneuverings and your connections and influences and uh, all the sorts of uh, uh, different different connections or people that you know, in government, let's say, Borei Olam says you're far from redemption. Now that he writes, Valken, Adam. God distances himself from Adam at that point. Kilo It's an amazing yesod. It's not that God wants to bring us to rock bottom to punish us, but it causes us to say we can't trust anybody. When we start to realize that they hate us. And if they're being nice to us, it's only because it's in their interest. Chamberlain once said, nations do not have permanent friends. Nations do not have permanent enemies. Nations have permanent interests. Which means they don't love the Jew. If you think that they like us, they love Israel, they give money, you're making a big mistake. They have interests. So as long as you think, oh, well, they come to APAC, and we have them here, we have them there, we have a lobby, we're covered, we're all good. You know what, we don't have to worry. Eh? Push comes to shove, we know exactly which buttons to push, who to call, it'll be handled. Boy, I'm so beautiful, you're far away. You have no clue how it's going to happen. As long as you think that your hand is going to be part of it, it's not going to happen. So what happens? Borei Olam starts to show you you can't trust anybody. And he starts to show that all the friends that you were calling don't, take your, don't answer your calls anymore. And all the ones that used to run to APAC now are saying, we don't support Israel anymore. Now they start to show their... And they say, what's going on over here? These are all the people that were... Ah, very good. Now you start to come to the realization, She'en lanu de'isha'en. And once you get to that point, then Bori Allah says, nah, you're almost ready for redemption. Now you're almost, and I'll give you a proof. If, if, you have, if you have the time, I'd like to give you two proofs to this concept. Proof number one, Megillat Esther. Now Purim's right around the corner. 
Megillat Esther, what happened? The Jewish people are in trouble. There's going to be a genocide in one day. What Hitler wanted to do in five years, Hamam was going to do in one morning. On the 13th of Adar, there was going to be a genocide. When you wake up on the 14th of Adar, the Jews were not going to be an endangered species. They were going to be extinct. He was going to get rid of everybody one day, and he had the money, and he had the machinery, and he had the mechanism. There was no time in Jewish history that the Jews were in more danger than that year. That's clear. So it happens. So Queen Esther calls a three-day fast. And everybody comes to fasts. And now everybody's relying that Queen Esther's going to go to the king and she's going to make some sort of uh, deal. She goes in. And what does she tell the king? Please, I need to ask a question for the king. Please don't uh, reject my... Whatever he asks. What do you want? Let the king... And Haman come tomorrow to a party, and tomorrow I will, uh, you know, discuss what I need. And Haman is thrilled. He's the only one that was invited to the cocktail party. The Gemara asked a simple question. Esther, you got into the king. You have his ear. Why don't you just tell him at that point... There's a bad guy, guy's called Haman, he's a rotten guy, he's trying to kill me, he's trying to kill my people. What is this business that she goes along and says, no, I need it tomorrow, and Haman's got to be there. What is she doing? Now, I know you can say she wanted to set him up, fine. But the Gibraltar says something even more, more uh, important. Gibraltar, you know what happened? They still realize something. The people... In the back of their minds, and maybe even in the front of their minds, you know what they were saying? It's at the end of the day, we have a queen that's Jewish. It's going to get handled. It's going to get handled. We're good. We fasted. Esther's not going to let this happen. We have a sister in the palace. I mean, could you be more connected? She's not the governor's wife. She's the queen. She's the most powerful lady in the world because Azrush was the king of the world. The second most powerful one to Ashveroz, the Queen Esther. If you said, if Ashveroz not going to listen to Queen Esther, who's going to listen to? So they all said at the end of the day, yeah, we're going to fast, we read the Tehillim, but you know what? It'll be okay. Especially it's a year out. So Esther Hitler. So Esther realized that. So she said, you know what? I got to remove myself from the picture. So what did she do? She invites Haman to a party. When the people saw that, they said, she's a turncoat. Look at this. She's inviting our enemy. Would you invite Hitler to a party? This the number one enemy. Now the people said, we can't even rely on Queen Esther. Politics makes everybody dirty. Politics makes the corrupt. They got her. They got her. She turned on us. That was Esther's hide. Now you know what they ended up doing? When they opened up the Tehillim the next day, <laughs> now they weren't praying to Queen Esther anymore. Now they read the Tehillim much different than they read it the day before. Now they said, God Almighty, we don't even have a queen in the palace. You're the only one that can help us over. Mission accomplished. She had to move them away from reliance on human intervention. And she had to bring them to what? Geulah Ruhani, Geulah from, from above. 
I'd like to bring you the second proof. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky brings it in the book, Emet the Yaakov. I have it in front of me. Those that want to see it after, you can there. I brought the book for show and tell. He says, I want to ask you a question. Shirabinu comes to the burning bush. Sneh. God tells him, go to Paro. Tell him, let my people go. Shirabinu comes back to Egypt. The people say, oh, Moshe, what are you doing here? I'm coming to take you out of Egypt. The people say, we're waiting for you. We can't believe Moshe's here. Moshe Rabbeinu walks into the palace. Paro. Uh, I, I'm an agent of God, Yudke Vavke, Havaya, he spells it Yudke Vavke. Here's my card, Moshe, agent of God. Mm-hmm. Paro looks at the card, he says, I don't know who you are. Well, you I remember, but I don't know who Havaya is. Lo yadati at Hashem. I don't know this Hashem. And by the way, go tell him, I'm not letting your people go. And not only that, but as of tomorrow morning, the work is going to get measurably more difficult. Where the government was supplying the bricks, the government's not supplying bricks. Now, when Moshe comes out of the palace, you have to imagine the people are waiting there. Moshe, what did he say? When are we leaving? Should we pack our bags? And Moshe Rebbeinu says, well, he didn't really, uh, what did he say? He actually said that before I came, the government was supplying the bricks. Well, now you're going to have to make your own bricks. And the people say, well, what did you do? Who asked you to come along and help us? You made us smell worse to Paro. And Rabbi Yaakov Kapanetsky said, what is it, a prank? God tells Moshe, go. And it's like a bad prank. Moshe who goes, and God knows that Paro's going to say no. So what is the setup over here? Don't send Moshe until Paro's ready. Meaning Moshe was sent before Paro was cooked. You know what the shot is? Because as long as the people think that Paro is, uh, he, he's impressionable. You could talk to Paro. He's got to get the right guy. Paro's a bad guy, but uh, we can get him. As long as you think that Paro is going to send you, you're never going to get out of Egypt. And that's why Medavka, they send Moshe, and when Moshe Rabinu fails... Then the people start to cry out to God. They say, God, you're the only one that's going to do this for us. We thought we were, it's Paro is not capable of sending us that he's such a big an anti-Semite. But all I'm asked to show the people clearly that human intervention not only is not going to work, but it'll have an adverse effect. Now it causes us to be on one and only God. Understand about that? It's a big assault. What this Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky explains another piece of Gemara. Gemara says, En Yisrael neg'alim That the Jewish people are not going to be redeemed, meaning Mashiach, until they despair and give up hope regarding the redemption. What does it mean? So Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, listen to his golden language. He says, I don't understand this Gemara. It needs explanation. It begs explanation. Rambam. 
Tikvat HaGeula? What do you think? Until we deny one of the 13 principles of Maimonides, then the Mashiach is going to come. Rabban writes, Ani ma'amin be'emunah shelema be'biat ha-Mashiach. Ve'afa pi she'it ma'maya ha'kelo be'chod yom she'yavo. As the song goes. And therefore, what does the Gemara say? Until we stop believing in that, then Mashiach is going to come. He's not going to be. Yaakov says, no, you don't understand the Gemara. You have to add one more parenthesis to this line. Until they give up hope that the Geulah is not going to come through human intervention. Once they come to the conclusion that the Geulah is not in their hands, then we have a chance for Mashiach to come. But as long as you think we have a state, we have a prime minister, we have a government, we have a senator, we have a, the worst guy, we have, we have a covered, we, have a, we know all the, all, the, all the connections. Ah, you're far from Geulah. Which means until you become hopeless from a synthetic Geulah, from a man-made Geulah. Once you get to the level of says the Kliyakar, now we understand why the Torah, when it discusses our salvation, gives the points on the compass in extreme. Because you need to go to extremes. First you need to go and then you go to Geulah. You gotta go Yamma it's got to be like the pendulum swings. You have to go from one extreme to the next. That's the way Geulah works. The Jew must get to a low place. Which incidentally, we might, we might be getting to that place. We might start uh, recognizing that maybe, uh, maybe the government doesn't like us that much. I've been told that many of our members that had very, very big connections with some senators, they don't even answer their calls anymore. It seems that we're not in the best interest anymore of, uh, of government, of, uh, of, the, of the leaders. Seems that uh, maybe uh, something has changed, and for a good reason. Because maybe God wants us to bring us to Geulah. And now we're saying, oh, you can't trust these politicians. So who can you trust then? And now we're going to direct our emunah. So this is what's happening now. We're witnessing it in America now. Until recently, we always said we have friends in high places and therefore we're good. And now we're starting to see that our friends are turning on us. And we're coming to it that they were really never our friends in the first place. It was just a convenient friend. They were using us. And that way they don't need us anymore. They're throwing us away like a dirty towel, which is a good thing. When that starts to happen, and you start to feel hopeless, and you start to say, well, what's going to be? Who's going to... That this guy got elected. That guy got... Beautiful. But I'm saying, perfect. I'm setting you up. Now, redirect your attention to the real, uh, uh, to the real maneuver of Geulam. Now, watch this. Once you get to this level of time, I'd like to make another observation. Again, Parashat Vayetze is the Parashat of Galut. Yav Yuhum opened up. At this point, 
I will ask you to open up to um, the chapter 31. Now I must tell you of a conversation that took place many years ago and they asked the saintly Hafez Hayim the following question. I think this is a question that you would be interested in hearing. They said to the rabbi, Rabbi, we know that a Jew could never leave the diaspora too early. You could never get out too early. But sometimes it's too late. So they asked the Hafez Hayim, how do you know when you have to leave? When, what, what's, the, what's the telltale sign that you know you got to pack your bags and leave? That's the question they asked the Hafez Hayim. Now, I wish I could stick around to give you the answer, gentlemen, but I really have to go because I have another meeting. But I think the question definitely uh, deserves some thought. All right, I'll stick around and give you the answer. <laughs> the answer was given to them by the Hafez Chaim, but then later I found the same answer by the Sron Hamor. Sron Hamor was one of ours. Rabbeinu Abraham Sabah. Rabbeinu Abraham Sabah was a rabbi from Spain. He was exiled from Spain to Portugal, and then they exiled him from Portugal. So he got exiled twice. He lived a very difficult life. If anybody knows the telltale signs, it's Rabbi Abraham Sabah. He lived it on his back twice. So he tells you, I'm going to tell you when it's time to leave. And he said, you know where I'm going to prove it from? From the Perashah of Galut. So Yaakov's living by Laban's house for 20 years. Vayishma, read chapter 31. Vayishma etivre bene Laban lemor. So Yaakov starts to hear the children of Laban murmuring. And what were they saying? Lakah Yaakov et kol asher le'avinu. This Yaakov. He's taken all our father's money. Rich Jew. They're living all, all those rich bankers. They're living off the interest that they charge us non-Jews. And for all that belongs to our father, he made all this glory. He heard the children of Lavan. They had gripes and claims. Next person. Then he saw Lavan himself, the face of Lavan. Doesn't look, doesn't look the same. At that point, God says to Yaakov, It's time to leave, go back to Israel. What happened? Says the Sronamor. When Bene Lavan is complaining, that's the citizens. Ah, the citizens are always going to have claims against the Jews. 
When it's B'nai Laban that's hurling anti-Semitic slurs and rhetoric against the Jews, rich Jews, filthy Jews, dirty Jews, when it's B'nai Laban, it's okay. But when it's P'nei Lavan himself, when it's the leadership starts to talk that way, when it's not the B'nei Lavan anymore, when it's Lavan, when it's the leaders that start to look at us differently and they start to pass laws against us and they start to say things that they would never say publicly against us, when it's Lavan, then God says, when the people turn against you, it's okay. But when the government turns against you, then you know it's over. And I think there's an illusion. You know, our government is, is referred to as the White House, Pene Lavan. When it comes from Pene Lavan, comes from Washington, from Penel Lavan. Then already you know, and we're seeing it today. Used to be when a, a senator or a governor couldn't make it to APAC, they would give an excuse, sorry, I'd love to come, but I have another, uh, you know, another uh, appointment that I can't cancel. Now they tell it to you straight, I'm against Israel, I'm not for what you're doing. Which is a shift, it never happened that way. Now they're telling you, Beferush. I don't like it. I don't support you. Now we're hearing anti-Semitism blatant. And even the Jewish senators that you'd expect to defend us, they're the ones that are the front and center with our enemies. Which is, again, I'm not even come to scare you over here, nor am I telling you to go straight from this class to Kennedy Airport and get on the next flight to, uh, to Tel Aviv. Although that might be a good idea. <laughs> but my point is, now you know the signs. When government starts to turn on us, then you know our... St- and if the Jews in Germany would have known that, you know, we don't question. But of course, they said, like we say in America, ah, it could never happen. Uh, we have friends, we have to do it, they'll handle it, Jews all over. But, and before you know it, the law started to be passed not by the citizenry, but the, by the government. And it happened fast, but by that time it was too late. So it's important to know this concept. Now, until this point, everything that we said is rational, logical. Listen, I know that a lot of our members don't come to this class to hear rational thinking. They come for the esoteric stuff. They say, Rabbi, we're... We want to hear the, you know, the Kabbalah, and give us the behind-the-scenes stuff, give us the, the mystical stuff, the, the rational stuff, okay, we can read that ourselves. We want the rabbi to give us the, the third dimension. Well, for those of you that are not satisfied yet with the first part of this class, and feel as if, uh, you know, you might have got ripped off by coming here tonight, <laughs> So therefore, I will now offer you the second part of the class, which looks at this whole story from a different perspective. We're going to use now the principles of Ariza. But you need a few introductions. When Adam Arishon ate from the tree, 
His neshama exploded. His neshama was made up of millions and millions of sparks. Those sparks exploded all over the world. It would then become the mission of Kla Yisrael to recover those sparks. And therefore Jews would be scattered throughout the world in our long history. And once the final spark is recovered and put back in its place, then we can have a redemption. These are referring of the Nitzotzot at Kiddushash in Pazru. Now the Arizal then explains something. That when a nation is hospitable to the Jewish people, it's for the following reason. Why did the, uh, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, he was favorable to the Jewish people in Eastern Europe. United States, they were favorable. Uh, Spain, in the beginning, was favorable. Why? What makes them favorable to us? So he says, because it's orchestrated from God, the Goyim have certain nitzotzot in their countries and in them. That's Kiddushah. Bnei Israel have intrinsic Kiddushah. Kiddushah is attracted to Kiddushah like a magnet. So therefore when they invite us into our country, it's because they find a certain likeness to us. A certain sameness. We have something that they have. And therefore it's called min bimino, like items, attract. And then for however many years we're in the country, we're extracting the Kiddushah through learning Torah, through, through mitzvot, through tefillah, through tzedakah, like we're doing here tonight, it's extracting. And then all of a sudden, the goyim turn on us and they kick us out. Says the Ariza, what happened? Once we extract the last spark, now it's no longer Kiddushah and Kiddushah, it's Kiddushah and Tum'ah, and Kiddushah and Tum'ah don't get along. So therefore, all of a sudden there starts to become a tension between the peoples. There starts to become a animosity. Why would happen? Once we finished extracting the last spark of Kiddushah from that people, now they have nothing in common with us anymore. Now the hatred is aroused, and they kick us out, and that's God's way of saying, you have no business here anymore. You're done. You finished your job here. Move on to the next location. Understand how we're explaining that? That's the way the Arizal explains why the Torah forbids us for setting up a community in Egypt after we left. Torah says you're not to go back to Egypt. Why? We have no business there. When we left Egypt, it says, What was the Rechush Kadol? We took all the sparks that they had. It was, it was, we left them bankrupt. Like the Gemara says. We emptied them out. So God says, why go back there? There's nothing to do there. Go to a different location. And that's what the Jews have been doing throughout. We went to Iraq. When we left Iraq, you know what we took with us? Talmud Babli. Very much. It was a big spark. And then there was a couple other sparks that the Benish High and his colleagues had to fix much later on. And once the Benish High left Baghdad, last one out shut the lights. Spain the same way. 
was a big renaissance period, and then all of a sudden, blackout. What happened? We're done. That, that, that area is fixed. Next subject. Syria, no difference. The country was a relatively normal country until the last Jews left, and then the country went into turmoil and a, a perpetual civil war. And I might add, I wish both sides success. Amen. <laughs> I hope both sides win. The point is, the point is, you look at it all over the world. We were there, it was glory, golden age, and all of a sudden, over. What happened? Ariza looks at it, we finished the tikkun in that location. And therefore, the wandering Jew is the, is the Jew that's just collecting Nitzotzot and all over the world. Now we're in America. And if you start to feel the animosity a little, that means we're almost done. It means we're almost emptied the barrel. That's why they're turning on us, which is a good thing. That means we're finished. The Gaon of Vilna said there's nothing after North America. North America is the last stop on the train. Bayhead Junction, that's it, there's nothing after. <laughs> Which means North America is the last stop. We're not going from here to the next place. Between Spain, we went to Europe. Europe, we went to North America. North America, that's it. That's the last stop. From here, we go to Israel. So we're watching it in our time, the Buddha. It's being set up. Don't, don't take for granted what we're going through. That's unbelievable history. Now watch this. The tzaddikim, when they look at you, they can see everything about you. It's all on your forehead. That's why the next time you go to a tzaddik, cover your forehead. <laughs> because if you don't want them to read you, like a newspaper, they see everything. Now, you don't have to be rabbis so too far ago. I went to rabbis in Israel you know, a few years ago. And I walked into them, I sat down, they just asked me for my name. Eliyahu Ben Yosef. And they didn't have to look at me, they just looked at my name. They said, oh no, I know about you. The rabbi told me you have six kids. I said, right, it's a good guess. He looked again, he says, yeah, three boys, three girls. Wow, pegged it. He looked again, he said, you could have more. I told him, you better call my wife, I'm not <laughs> But the point is, the guy didn't know me from Adam Rishon. He just looked at my name. And he's able to say everything about me. Says the Ariza, when the Tzadikim look at a goy, they can see right away if there's Nitzotzot in him or not. They can read him right away. You know those guys on the, uh, on the beach with the Geiger counters looking for bottle caps? You see them looking for treasures? The tzaddik is like a guy in county. He stands in front of the shah. He thinks, things start to, to, to make the noise. Oh, there's action over here. When Yaakov Abinu came to Laban's house, he said, oh, there's a lot of business over here. So he, that, that's, that's why he was very, very comfortable to sell work another seven years. Another, why, why is he offering all this crazy time to work? Because he knew his business here. It's going to take time to extract. And therefore, I got work. He pulls out Rachel, he pulls out Leah, 
‫מפה זה ה-12 שבטים. Not that Lavan looked at him with animosity like we learned in the Pshat. But according to the Kabbalah, it means he didn't see the same face. He says, yesterday Lavan's face was glowing with something. Now it went dark on us. Once his face is not Ketmol Shilchom, it's time to leave. There's no business over here. You've extracted everything. You understand how we're learning the Pasuk? You see, you understand we're learning the Pasuk? That his face did not give the, the, the reading. Empty. It was empty. But here's the key now. About time. Lavan is called Lavan Ha'arami. He's a Ramai. What's a Ramai? He's a trickster. He's devious. He's a scam artist. Now, I have to tell you something amazing. He was still holding something in his pocket. You know, sometimes you get a false reading, you know, false positive in the COVID. They tell you, you have it, you don't have it. <laughs> Yaakov looked at Lavan, he saw nothing left. Because Lavan, he knew he can, he, he's not going to give him everything. He put this one in a real safe deposit box where even Yaakov Abinu, he looked at him. He was still holding something. Watch the story, boys. How do I know he was still holding something? Because when he leaves, Yaakov that is, so all of a sudden Nadvan wants to chase, he starts to chase him. Hey, how come he didn't say goodbye? All of a sudden he's worried about social graces. The guy. He didn't say goodbye. The guy's out of Shabrusha. You didn't say goodbye. So now, God comes to Levan in a dream. Now, if God's coming to him in a dream, that means he still's got goods. There's still something to talk. How could God come to him? There's still uh, Wi-Fi. And what does God tell him? Don't, don't mess around with this guy. Don't start with Yaakov. Don't mess around with Yaakov. I know you're trying to hurt the guy. Don't hurt him. Now, if you would Levan... You're chasing Yaakov to kill him. God says, don't do it. What's your next move? Exactly. We call that in driving school a U turn. <laughs> you make a U turn. Not a K turn, a U turn. Make a U turn, go home. Finish. I was only going there to kill the guy. Once God told me you can't kill him, so why? What did you say? Hey, you didn't want to say goodbye to Yaakov. We don't care about Yaakov. So go home. Instead, what does he do? He goes. What are you going for? What are you going for? For the free Saudah? What are you going for? Abotai, look what happens. They get there, they meet. All of a sudden, what does Yaakov say? Let's make a peace treaty. Fine. So they start to make this monument. 
have a, have a seuda by the monument. And now all of a sudden, this is the most amazing pasuk in the whole Torah, without a doubt. Without a doubt, this is the most amazing pasuk in the whole Torah. Vayikralo Lavan. Lavan's going to give the... Uh, it's going to give the monument a name. The Yellowstone, uh, he didn't call it, but he called it Yigar Sahaduta. Now why is that incredible? Because our Torah is written in Hebrew. This is the only two non-Hebrew words in the Bible. And I'm going crazy. Lavan, you're stuck in Aramaic and our Torah. Why would God even allow it? By the way, God always translates whatever language they were speaking, we end up getting in Lashon HaKodesh. I'll prove it to you. Batya finds a baby in the Nile. You remember the story? What does she call the baby? Why does she call him Moshe? Batya didn't speak Hebrew. Batya was an Egyptian. She didn't call him Moshe. She called him some Arabic name, Musa. And in Arabic she said, because from the Maya I brought him out. So the Torah is not going to write her words in Arabic. The Torah says, Moshe, what do you call it? It it translates, Google Translate. But over here, Lavan, it's like when when, when Avraham Abinu had the guests. So imagine the Pasuk says, Bayomer Avraham, Ahlan u Sahlan. That's because he spoke Arabic to them. No, you don't put, he might have said it, but we don't put, we say, Baruch Abba. Bayomer Sarah, be Jannin. We don't, we don't put, no, you see, we don't put, we don't put foreign languages. It's not the United Nations. And all of a sudden here, not only does Lavan call it Yegar Saduta, but the Torah doesn't feel that it has to trace. It puts it in as is. Now Yaakov, I mean right away, he has to give it a Hebrew name because Yaakov Karalo Galaed. What's going on away? Says the Ariz on something amazing. Our Torah was given in Lashon HaKodesh, but it also was given with a translation. That translation is the official translation of the Torah, even before Pirush Rashi. That translation is called Targum. It is an Aramaic translation. You cannot buy a Humash that does not have the Targum. That is part of the homash. Every homash has to the left margin, whatever it may be, targum. And who wrote that targum? Onkelos. Now Onkelos revived, it was given at Sinai, the targum. Where did Onkelos come from? He was Gerim. Mishpach Gerim. But Onkelos' name is in every homash, by the way. Every homash, Onkelos, is there. 
How important is this man? Important guy's name is on every on every page, by the way. <laughs> guy's name's on every page of the Bible. Unkelus. Says the Arizal, you know where Unkulus was? He was in Navan's pocket. He wasn't going to give him Unkulus. So I gave you Rahel, I gave you Le'ah, I gave you Belha, I gave you Zilpa, I gave you Tov Shibatim. Enough, Hajj. Leave me one pearl, leave me one item, leave me Targum Unkulus. Because, listen, I'm not going to give you a translation. I'm holding it. Bore Olam says to Lavan, don't start with him. Don't do anything bad. And Laban understood, if I can't do anything bad, that means I gotta, I gotta release it. That's why he didn't make a U-turn. He had to go. And all of a sudden, he gets up and he releases Unkelush. You know how he released it? Yegar Sahaduta. He says the Aramaic word. That is Yaakov said, thank you very much. That's Unkelush. I was <laughs> It's a nice trick. When I looked at yesterday, I didn't see anything. But Yegar Saduta makes it to the Torah. And we know that when we read the parasha every week, how do we read it? Twice on the Hebrew side, once in the Aramaic. Look at the text here. Aramaic. Ve'yakov karolo gal'ed. Yaakov calls it Gal'ed. That's the Hebrew. Vayomer Lavan, Ed Beni Ubenecha Alken Karashemo Gal'ed. He calls it Gal'ed. Shnai Mikrava Hatargum. Two Gal'eds and one Yegar Zaduta. Right there in front of us. So, what do you see from over here, Rabotai? Whether you prefer the Pshat or whether you prefer the Kabbalah, definitely something's happening. We're going through a tremendous process over here. Who knows? Maybe we already reached Takhlita Shiflut during the Holocaust. I hope it is. I can't see me reaching a lower level than that. But we're starting to see now that all of what we thought in America that only was happening from Bene Lavan is happening now from Lavan himself. The face of Lavan is not the same anymore. And we're also understanding that with all the Torah that's being generated in America, we're probably, we're probably pulling out the last of the Mohicans, the last of the sparks that are at the bottom of the barrel. And that might explain why the attitudes are changing. That might explain why they're a little less hospitable, a little less tolerant, a little less uh, you know, accommodating. It's all because that the process is being done. For us, for us, we have to remember that that right after he takes Unkelos, what does the Pasuk say? That's it, see you Now we can move to a different location and start his business somewhere else. And just like Yaakov Abin went into the Galut, and in next week's parasha returns to Eretz Yisrael, safe and sound, Siman <coughs> Nabanim, it's gonna happen to us as well. Amen. We're gonna go into the Galut, and then we confronted with the Lavans and the Isas, which have confronted us. But rest assured, if Yaakov went into the Galut, and he returned safely back, 
It's going to happen to us. But it'll only happen if you recognize what the Pasuk says. Yisrael Noshah Badonai. Teshuat Olamim. When Yisrael recognizes that its Teshuat comes from God, then it's a permanent Teshuat. But as long as B'nai Yisrael believes that the Geulah is in their hands, and Yisrael Nigalim but for us will be fulfilled the extremes which have been fulfilled already which is behind us now we're just waiting for Ketma now we're waiting for Tachlita Shiflut to lead to Tachlita Geula Vahi Erev Vahi Boker Amen Amen